there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. What do you think that the Feminist Writers Festival brings that other festivals in Sydney don't bring? A space for women to just say what they want to say and like I wish this was almost something that happened much more regularly. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney 2018 supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Anne Summers, Unfettered and Alive. I'm delighted to be interviewing Anne. She's such an iconic and fearless storyteller. She's acknowledged and honoured and dug up the stories of women around her, women in history, women in in prisons and on Wall Street and in politics for decades and we are all better off for the work that she has done, I believe. And I really, I loved this book. It is so rich in detail and those kinds of stories. I want to talk tonight, there is so much to talk about in this book. If you have any book clubs, you must do it because there's really so much to mine. But I want to talk about the title really primarily tonight which is unfettered and alive and what it means to kind of break free of fetters because we all still do it or you think you've broken through and then you're constantly castigating yourself or you find another fetter. Um, And I want to know how you've done it. But first of all, I guess my question is something I've pondered a lot about as a biographer is what makes a life worth telling and I want to know what has been your drive to tell it. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. It's great to see you. And thank you, Julia, for, for um, uh, coming with, with the sore throat and, and a voice. And I'll try and talk, give long answers to, 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 preserve, to preserve your... As opposed to... <laughs> yeah. um, but that, you know, that's the kind of question that, that you know, only a biographer would ask. Uh, a very, very tough question. Um, but you're right, it goes to the... the the point of it all, uh, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to do was, I, I, there's a, a quote on the back cover of the book where I, I say, and this is this comes from you know the very end of the book. I say that, you know, I grew up expecting to, I was expected to tread lightly on this earth, you know, to have to not to influence um, it, through my husband and children, if at all, uh, expected to sort of disappear as I aged. Um, and I said, I have defied those expectations, as have millions of women like me. Um, but the story I wanted to tell I me, mean, everyone says, oh, you've had this fabulous career, you've done you know, this and that and what have you, uh, which is true. But I wanted to tell the story of how I was able to do those things, having started life as a very sort of diffident, self-loathing, lacking in confidence, fat, ugly girl in Adelaide uh, in the late 1950s and early 60s uh, and the only, uh, we didn't use the term role model then, but the only lives uh, available to me to sort of guide me to where I might end up were were those of my mother and her sisters. Mm. And my mother was, um, you know, had six children and was what was used to be known as a housewife. I don't think we even say that anymore, do we? But she was a housewife until the youngest child went to school and she then went back into the workforce. She had one sister who was um, a, a nun, a sister of mercy, and another sister who, uh, in the terminology of the, of the era, was on the shelf, um, a spinster. She hadn't married and so, you know, it was a bit of a disgrace to the family. And so, to me, she was the, the best. I mean, she was the most glamorous one. She had, had a job. She had money. She took me out to dinner at Florentino's restaurant in Melbourne, which was the most unbelievably glamorous thing I'd ever done in my life. I think I was 17. And uh, she showed me that um, actually ha- being single and having a job and having money was looked like a pretty good option mm. compared with six kids and nappies and all that stuff that we had at home. 
Um, so I've always been very grateful to my auntie Nance, and unfortunately she died at the age of 32 from a, from a disease. But she she uh, really showed me um, that you could that there were different options. And then I think the other source of my knowledge, living growing up in a very conservative Adelaide in, in that era, was was books. I mean, the, the the lives that you wanted to lead, the life I wanted to lead, I couldn't see it around me. So you you read about it, you read books, and you. It was interesting that there were very few Australian books that I could find that where there was any path to follow. And I said the only character in Australian fiction that I really identified with was Judy in Seven Little Australians, and she died when she was 14. So <laughs> one of the things I re- really admire about Frank Morehouse and his trilogy of books is he has created this fantastic woman, um, Edith Campbell Barry, um, who is exactly the kind of woman that I would wish had been around in literature when I was growing up, and I'm I'm very glad that she's she's finally there now. And I think we need more such characters. So what I wanted to do was to sort of show that it doesn't matter where you start or what what your situation is, as, as once you realise that you are in charge of your life, mm-hmm. and once you realise that uh, you can do what you want to do, and if if you're brave and if you're willing to be um, you know, if, if you're willing to take risks and if you're willing to um, you know, endure the pain of rejection and the pain of failure, um, you can do anything. And just because you fail doesn't mean you're finished. It means, okay, you stop doing that and you do something else. Right. Good. Another title could have been The Shelf. That's kind of on nice the too. The yeah. Shelf, yeah, left on the, the shelf. shelf. Yes. And Summers on Shelf Love. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Now, you tell us why you called it unfettered and alive and tell us what those fetters were because you say at one point in the book when you talk about the complicated relationship of Simone de Beauvoir, mm. whose kind of words thread through this book, mm. you say we're all prisoners of our early formation. Mm. Have you been a prisoner? Like what has that meant? I get well, just to, to give a slightly more prosaic answer initially, um, the reason that I've chosen this title for the book is because of Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. Because uh, for the five years it's taken me to write the book, for four and a half of them, the book was going to be called Becoming. That's right. And that was because taken from Simone de Beauvoir, uh, whose you know, who's, who's phrase, one is not born, rather one becomes a woman, was sort of like the, 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 the signature. A quotation for, that guided me throughout my life and it seemed to me that becoming was, was another way of telling my story. And then in February this year I read that Michelle Obama had a book coming out and it was the same month as mine, it was called Becoming. So that was the end of that. I think it was before February, wasn't it? Because I saw, I saw you in New York and Anne was like... It was really cold. The ice had, like, frozen all her pipes. <laughs> yes. It, it had flooded the apartment. She and Chip were, like, in a nearby hotel, the move. two of them working in one little room together. Yeah. And Michelle Obama had taken Becoming. Yes, yes. 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 So it was, a, it was a pretty bad week. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I think she did me a favour, I now think, because this title is much better. And I'm thrilled the way in which people have responded to the title. Mm-hmm. And even I was quite, I mean, even shocked yesterday to 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 talk to somebody who um, had no idea where it came from. Person who I, I, I thought everybody would know. Does everybody here know where it comes from? Johnny. No, Johnny Mitchell. Yes, yes. So um, anyway, so it's interesting that it, the title works even for people who don't know. That song. Mm. But there is Joni Mitchell who, you know, probably has provided the soundtrack for most of my life. And I remember when I was writing Down Whores and God's Police, I had these Joni Mitchell cassette tapes that I used to play on a little cassette player that was on the, up on the floor beside my desk and, you know, very tinny sound. But, you know, the, mm. I would have been playing that song back then and, and it's still with me. Um, Unfettered and Alive, it's a line from a song called Free Man in Paris. And it's 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 about being free and un- unfettered and and I guess in my situation um, you know I made the decision not to have children uh, fairly early on in my life and it was a decision that was tested a number of times subsequently when I inadvertently became pregnant and had to make decisions about 
what to do and in the end I decided not to not to proceed with them and and I have to just add at this point I do not want to trivialize in any sense at all what happens when you have an abortion but I did have a little smile when when um you spoke about going through one and then you maxed out your credit card on a beautiful high heels because that's so you three pairs of stilettos yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and she's always got these incredible stilettos on at every single not today no I think I think I've surrendered it to, was so to, the uncomfortable shoe. <laughs> okay, you continue. Although, although last Friday night in Adelaide, uh, Julia Gillard interviewed me, and uh, it was a wonderful event. It was like a return bout from when I did the interview with her at the Sydney Opera House uh, five years ago, and we decided that we would wear the same clothes as we wore to the Opera House right. event. So that involved my having to go to my house. I don't live in anymore; it's rented, but I do have a. F- few things you know, upstairs in the attic, including my shoe museum <laughs> with my f- famous red stilettos that I wore that day. So I borrowed them and wore them again on Friday night and um, they became a little bit of a hit on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the fetters of uh, – the, the, so you're talking about one of them was – One of them is children. I mean, children. I, I, I mean not having children um, was a decision I made, um, which I don't regret at all. It, it enabled me to have a uh, – if you like, an ability to accept, um, you know, most of the things I've done in my life are things that other people have thought I should do. Like I didn't ever occur to me that I should run the Office of the Status of Women or that I should buy Ms Magazine or that I should be the head of Greenpeace. People have come to me and said, why don't you do this? "Hmm, Okay, that sounds interesting, good idea. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to accept these challenges because I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, Mm -hmm. other people's lives. Um, I, I have a partner that I've, someone I've been with for the last thirty years, but because you know we are pretty mobile and we've both mm-hmm. zoomed around the world to different countries uh, for, for, for for various opportunities. So that's one thing. But I guess the other thing is that um, I, I have learned to you know it's taken many many decades, but I have learned to not care. Uh, enough about what people think of me for that to deter me from doing what I want to do. And that might sound like a very simple thing. And I, to me, it, it now is a simple thing. But I know from talking to particularly young women how worried they are about what people think of them. And that, it, that a lot of young women find it very hard to um, not care about that. So, I mean, to me, I think as, as a sort of older feminist, you know, one of the things that, that perhaps we have failed in is is in communicating to women that you don't have to be liked and the sort of people who don't like if you're doing what you want to do aren't the people you want to be friends with anyway you know go for the people that will like you for those things so we have to learn to be more confident um, about ourselves and our own decisions and our own choices and not be um, intimidated or um, deterred by by public opinion can you even imagine what your life would have been like if you were Anton Summers? No. <laughs> it's so intrinsic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't um, – I mean, I was very young when I was sort of in my teens and I, you know, I was – I remember I had a, 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 um, a, 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 a on my wall in, uh, beside my bed a, a, um, a page from Medea about I think the first word of you know of all, of all things upon earth that grow heard most cursed is woman, and I was going through a very you know self pitying stage about not you know, wish, wishing I hadn't been born a woman uh, because it was so horrible. But uh, but I, I I I that phase didn't last very long, mm. and I can't imagine being anything other than who I am, and I certainly don't um, <coughs> regret. Um, mm. Being female, I mean, I have five brothers. I know what it's like to grow up with, with men, and I don't, um, I don't miss, I don't envy them at all. I mean, I guess the other reason I wanted to write this book, um, and I, I see the book in many ways, not so much as as a story about me. I see it as a history of an era, mm. a history of, of of the last forty years, looking at various institutions such as politics, such as journalism, such as. Um, uh, feminism, um, international environmental organisations, and in which I am a central character in many of these stories, but in some of them I'm, I'm just a bystander or an observer, and I'm, I'm really trying to tell the story of how I, as an individual, 
managed the last 40 years and how I went from being that girl in Adelaide to whatever I am today. Um, but it's also so, which can be an exemplary tale, I hope, for, for other people mm. uh, to follow. Um, but it was also, you know, the story of our times. And, you know, we've, we've, I've been fortunate to be on the cusp of an extraordinary period of history when, you know, if I'd been born 10 years earlier, if I was my mother, let alone my grandmother, <coughs> I wouldn't have had anything like the same opportunities for education, for employment, for travel, um, for independence, um, for all of the things that, that I've been able to benefit from and which uh, women after me, younger than me, could benefit from even more. Um, and our lives really have been transformed. And I've been very fortunate to be on that cusp. And so it's also partly the story of how we as women have, um, if you like, existed within this changing world mm. um, while trying to change it, you know, while not accepting a lot of things about that world, wanting to change it, but having to exist within it while it's, you know, while it's in the process of change and transformation and also a process, as I do describe, of pushback, you know, we've had a lot of setbacks. There's a chapter in the book called "The Getting of Anger," where I describe, um, you know, my anger about that personal pushback that I experienced, and also the political pushback that that I argue occurred in this country after 1996, when when John Howard was elected. Mm. So it's trying to sort of bring all of those characteristics in together, and I think that's really what a life is, because it's not just you know. And it's the big society, it's the big picture and I'm sort of just, you know, one little picture of it. I'd like to return to that question of anger actually but one thing I wanted you to talk about is I was so fascinated by your stories of journalism Mm -hmm. in the 70s and the 80s from the National Times to the Financial Review and the hard drinking (laughs) Um, and those long lunches and the kind of... Just the... I mean, it was the beginning of, you know... (laughs) One thing I didn't put in the book, I was just saying to someone last night, I, I, I regret now I didn't put it in, that when I used to write my Canberra Observe column at the Finn Review on Friday nights, uh, Thursday nights for Friday's paper, <clears throat> it would generally be a six-can job. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were all drunk, all of them, for like 20 no, years. we weren't. Yes, no, you we were. were. It's we all in here. We could carry it. <laughs> They call you H Hollow Legs. Yes, yes. <laughs> now we're getting only, down to the only, only close friends. <laughs> um, in fact, I put when I first put that in, HL was my nickname, and uh, I, someone said, "What does that mean?" I said, "You have to ask." But anyway, so I, I, I have put a, I have put brackets to explain what it is. <laughs> um, okay, so the it was only the, beer. Oh, of course, <laughs> I was saying it was cans of vodka. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Um, okay, so the hard drinking times, the times when women were just, you know, moving off the social pages into sections like look. And some of the, you know, this was the narrative nonfiction, the Tom Wolfe era, the beginning of long-form journalism in a whole different way, um, which, which you write about how creative you were with a lot of your storytelling. I loved that one, but it wasn't published, actually, the story you told about wanting to give your Christmas hampers of the turkey in the back of the car to the homeless yeah. guys and then they just all kind of g- grabbed the flesh off it and then they all pulled out their penises and you just <laughs> and you said, this is what I'd really like for Christmas and you went back and wrote it up and put it on your editor's... <laughs> So I was just being creative piece of writing and it didn't go down very well. <laughs> he published it. Oh, I thought he did. It, yeah, it was published. He published it. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but lo- looking at that, I was conscious. But it was psychedonic. I was sort of, you know, sending myself up. I mean, there's that stupid, you know, socially aware female thinking give, go and dispense good cheer at, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's that park just by Central Railway? I know the one. Yeah. yeah. Huh? Belmore Park, that's right. But it just struck me as the kind of story that before would not have been told. Of course And you were telling stories about prisons as well as looking at, you know, at at corruption and at looking at the police force and so on. But what struck me about some of this reporting was that as you must have been writing this, the Me Too movement was cascading over the landscape and you were talking about how you reported on the rape trains Mm. in rural Queensland... Mm. You were talking about kind of, you know, groping and, you know, harassment by cabinet ministers and a really interesting dispute with David Marr 
<laughs> if you had a you know, of of your disagreement about whether the woman who claimed to have been raped at St Paul's College, who believed the men, which mm. he did, mm. and who believed the woman, mm. which you did. And so what we did was we, you know, after we, we, we locked ourselves away in my apartment in Elizabeth Bay for about three days and sort of argued about how we're going to write the story and we, we could not... That would make a great play or something, <laughs> the, the three days in Elizabeth Bay. We, we couldn't agree. So in the end what we had to do is, you know, is, and it was kind of a pioneering a new way of writing about it, but it was also a very... Um, legitimate way of writing a, a, a story because it reflected what happens in the real world. The he said, she said. And so David Ma represented the he and I represented the she and I totally believed the girl. I mean, I, I, and she'd given me a stat deck and everything. I, I completely believed her. Um, but so we wrote it, the story. It was, the story was called The Animal Act of the Year and it was about um, some stuff that happened at St Paul's College and Women's College back in um, 1976, I think it was. And um, the story reflected our inability to reach agreement, which in fact reflected what you know, real life. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a very powerful way of telling the story. Some of you probably remember it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the the rape trains? I mean, that to me was so deeply shocking to reread. Yeah. I had never read it in the original. Really? No. Um, this was again in 1976, uh, so it was in my uh, first year of, of working at the National Times and uh, I, it was a story I did with two male colleagues, Bruce Stannard and Bruce Hanford, and one of them, one of the guys had heard from um, a friend who he'd, he'd met, somebody he'd met at a conference, who came from a town in North Queensland called Ingham, um, that there used to be what were known as the trains in the, in the cane fields. And, and that is that, you know, people would be at the pub on Saturday night and a couple would leave the pub and go off together and, and the guys in the pub would go toot toot and, you know, they'd follow, 50 guys would follow and they'd all rape the girl. And this was happening... Like, right. huh? I, was, I was responding to the gasps. I yeah, had the was, same gasp reading. Was, this is, I mean, well, this is shocking, but I have sort of known about this for a while and have written about it, so I'm over the shock, but... But we were, you know, shocked. This couldn't be true. This couldn't be right. So, you know, we got on the phone or Bruce got on the phone and rang the cops in, in Ingham and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, this happens. You know, we've, we've given up. We just can't, you know, can't pin any, anybody on it. No one will complain or whatever. Um, so we, we were sent up there. And this is very unusual in those days to send three journalists on one story. It was even more unusual to send anyone to North Queensland and, uh, and to do a story like that. Um, so, but we went up there, we, we went to Townsville, we got rented a car, we drove from Townsville to Ingham and we were only there for one day but we'd done a lot of a preliminary work and we divided up the work in advance and I, again I was going to go and talk to the girls and uh, the two guys were going to go and talk to the, the men, they, the, the men being the police, um, the magistrate, the local newspaper editor and if they could find them, some of the actual, you know, rapists, not that we could use that word, um, and we covered an amazing amount of ground in just one day. And I think I spoke to about three or four girls who'd been raped. Um, I spoke to a teacher who said, you know, every time she saw a girl come into her room in tears, she'd think, oh, no, not another one. Mm. And the police who said, look, you know, we just can do nothing about it. And so we put together this very, very powerful story that, that ran over about five or six pages of the National Times and it caused an absolute sensation. And I think it was because the story in itself was very, very shocking, but... Back then, crime was crime was there were crime pages, you know, police blotter sort of stories, but these sorts of stories were never told in the main part of the paper, and they certainly weren't told in a sort of narrative fashion and from a feminist perspective. Because I'd been on the paper straight from writing Damned Halls and God's Police, and you know they were quite happy with me bringing some of those points of view into my stories, and uh, so it, it it caused a huge sensation and. Premier Bajoki Peterson was on the ropes about it and there was a very you know, terrific woman Liberal Party member of uh, Parliament up in Queensland, Rosemary Kyberts, who took it up and was forced pushing for law reform. Um, so it was, it, was, it was interesting, yeah. Did, did the fact that all the, the Me Too movement was happening make you reflect differently at all on what you were doing then and the stories you were bringing to light? I don't quite understand. Well, there like was a, no <coughs> Me Too then. Sorry, no, but no, but as in you're you're writing your memoir about these stories that were previously not told, 
And we're still having the same conversations, obviously not about trains but about consent and about rape and about domestic mm. violence and you set up the, you know, the first refuge in Australia. Did it make you think how we're still struggling with the same issues? I think we are but, but what, what, what is different is that our, um, our, our understanding of, of issues has evolved um, our our willingness to confront things has evolved, and we do th- see things differently. I mean, the, how, our whole knowledge of of rape, for example, um, was so incredibly sort of enlarged and enhanced by Susan Brownmiller's book Against Our Will, which I think was published in 1976, and also Jermaine um, Greer's book, um, because you know that she introduced concepts such as date rape. And that kind of made, suddenly made sense of, oh, all these things that used to happen to you when you went out with guys who wouldn't take no for an answer. That wasn't rape because you knew him. No, rape was something – that was a stranger in a dark alley. That was rape as far as we've been brought up to believe. And it was, you know, as our, as our consciousness expanded and our, you know, analytical um, – I guess our, our, our ability to analyse the situation expanded – you know, we came to understand that things that rape was, you know, is, was different types of it was all forced sex, but uh, there were different situations to to describe it. And I think that same with something like sexual harassment. I mean, that that term wasn't coined until you know the late sixties. We didn't have any seventies. I mean, we didn't have any language to describe that behaviour, even though the behaviour certainly existed. Uh, but, you know, my mother talks about she's the first girl to work in a bank in Deniliquin in New South Wales in the Riverina in, uh, you know, 1942 or something, 43. And she said every lunchtime the bank manager would ask her to sit on his knee and he'd tickle her. Or she said tickle. I don't know what, you know. <laughs> it probably was, she was probably being a little discreet. But, but um, she didn't have the language to describe what that was. So I think that, you know, our, our, our ability to comprehend, to name and to sort of understand how these things fit into the overall pattern of male power and, you know, male exploitation of, of, of women has really expanded a, a lot. And the Me Too st- – I mean, I was, had almost finished the book by the time Me, the first Me Too revelations came out. Yeah. That was October um, – 2017. In fact, the book was pretty much finished by then, so I got a little reference at me too in, but not nothing, nothing major. Mm-hmm. But we, even before we got that name and that way of characterising, um, I mean, the thing about me too is not about the behaviour. It's about women. Um, it's about it's a statement of empathy. Mm-hmm. It's about women saying yes, that happened to me too. Right. And you know, it's a different form of consciousness raising. It is because. I mean, one of the things I find really fascinating about Me Too is that, you know, initially there's criticism, well, you know, these are all white women, they're all Hollywood actresses, they're all well-paid, they're famous, they're blah, blah, blah. Women, ordinary women can't identify with that. Well, actually, that was bullshit. Ordinary women identified incredibly, uh, as was, you know, the, the Me, Me Too hashtag on Twitter, which I think was um, used something like, you know, 12 billion times in a very, very short time. And I just know from people I personally know who on on Facebook and Twitter, and in in face to face conversations, who uh, and and I one woman who's a factory worker in the, in um, in the Ozarks in 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 uh, Missouri, she told stories on Facebook about the times in which you know all her life she's been a factory worker, a blue collar worker, um, and she'd never before told these stories about how she's been groped you know every job she did a supervisor or. A, co-worker, and, and you had no recourse, you had nothing you could do about it because you couldn't afford to lose the job, you couldn't complain because half the time the person you complained to would be your boss, so you just put up with it. So, you know, this woman, he is, um, um, you know, whatever, I can't even remember the names of some of the actresses now, but who made the complaint, saying that thing, she said, me too, that happened to me. And okay, my boss wasn't a movie producer, but he had the same power to... You know, to deny me employment, and if I don't have employment, I don't have any independence. I can't exist, you know, as as an independent woman. So I think the you know the 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 statement of empathy is what's so powerful about it, and the uh, actual behaviour that's being identified with uh, might vary in detail, but the general proposition is the same. It's 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 you know mostly a a, a man abusing his economic uh, power over somebody in employment to. 
extract sexual favours. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to work in the Australian media and then the American as a woman? Like I love the parts in the book when you talk about you're just your love of Manhattan, the sparkle and the proximity and the beauty of Central Park and the intrigue and the people and the bagels and fairways, all that detail. Um, I really love. But Americans often assume... We had lunch one day over fairway, we didn't we? Fairways, we did, exactly. It sounds like we spend all our time doing that, if only. <laughs> um, but um, a lot of my American friends always assume that Australia is just this terrible, backward, sexist place without acknowledging the... I mean, look at what happened to Hillary Clinton, for example. Um, some of the things I've had said to me when I was at Harvard, like I'm often surprised by some of the overt examples. But what was it like for you then with such an extraordinary and enviable job with Ms Magazine? Mm. Well, it was announced in the New York Daily News headline, Crocodile Dundee to edit Ms. <laughs> That was, that was a, great, a great bit of positioning. <laughs> and uh, They still say that. They still say – that's what I was called at Harvard by a bunch of people, Croc uh, Dundee. Uh, Paul Hogan. Unbelievable. Um, I mean, I, I devote two chapters of the book to my experiences at, at Ms. Magazine and the um, – it's, it's a sort of very multi-layered story. It's, first of all, a story of, of – um, you know, an iconic feminist magazine that was in financial trouble and, and um, Sandra Yates, who, who was also working for Fairfax on the magazine side when I was working for Fairfax on the newspaper side in uh, New York in 1986, um, you know, were able to persuade Fairfax to buy Miz. So it's a, it's a story about how we bought Miz from Gloria Steinem and how we took it over and how we tried to save it, basically. Mm-hmm. It's also a story, you know, we had another magazine called Sassy, a teenage girls magazine, which was an incredibly successful magazine, but we uh, came to grief because the right wing, uh, some women from the right religious right took us on and managed to, you know, take away our advertising by organising boycotts. It's also a story about how we, um, we called ourselves media mogulettes, not because we were women, but because we were small, uh, our, our empire was very small. How we were able to arrange to buy, to, uh, to, to raise money on Wall Street to buy the magazines when Fairfax sold them. Um, and it's I love how you talk about the power suit as well. That right, you got to do right. that. Well, what happened was, um, you know, we just found out one night, one Sunday night, that young Warwick Fairfax, who some of you will remember, that happened. He took over, announced he was going to privatise the family company, and blew the place up basically. And um, he announced that, that he would be selling all of Fairfax's overseas properties and that was Miz and Sassy in, in New York and uh, they owned The Spectator in London, they owned stuff in New Zealand and what have you. And Sandra Yates, who was a very, very um, creative you know, business thinker, not, I'm, I wasn't at all but I was certainly willing to go along with her schemes, she said, um, you know, let's see if we can buy them ourselves. And so she organised a five-week... Um, uh, option period that if we could raise the money, $14 million to repay Fairfax what they'd paid plus whatever we felt we needed to uh, operate the magazines, we decided that was $20 million, uh, because Sassy was doing so well we didn't really need that much in, 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 in ongoing capital. We, if we, we had five weeks to raise the $20 million and Sandra said, well, you know, people don't lend money to people who look like they need it which is true. So we both went out and bought the most expensive suits you could possibly imagine. So it was a wonderful red Anne Klein suit with huge padded shoulders. And um, she said, and I said to Sandra, I don't, you know, I've never spent this much money in my life on, on, a, on an outfit. I can't believe it. And she said, well, either we will do this deal, doctor, she always called me doctor, or we'll end up being the best dressed bag ladies in New York. <laughs> As it turned out, we did both. <laughs> We raised the money, then we lost the company. Um, but in terms of the journalism, which was your original question, I mean, what I, you know, the big challenge I thought with Ms. Magazine was to, you know, magazine which had been an iconic challenge to commercial women's magazines when it was first established in 1972 by uh, Steinem and others. Um, and their um, mission, if you like, had been to create a magazine that. Um, you know, reflected the changes that were happening in women's lives. That you know, made as Gloria famously said, you know, the women's existing women's magazines were there to make women feel 
um, guilty and insecure about themselves. And so Ms Magazine was one that would make women feel good about themselves and you know, show the world as it could be for women, get advertising, be a commercial proposition and um, show a new way for women's magazines. But 15 years on, um, the magazine had kind of, you know, it was now making women feel guilty uh, about themselves. So the circulation had collapsed and the original core readers were still there and they didn't want anything to change. They still wanted to hear all the, you know, the grim stories about how terrible things were. But most women, and particularly younger women, want, wanted something a bit more optimism, a bit more hope. They didn't want to be made to feel guilty about their lives. They wanted to feel some optimism. Um, advertising had basically dried up and so the company was very indebted. But when we took it over, we were you know, arrogant enough, I think, to think we could make it work because Sandra's business experience and I thought my journalistic uh, background and I really, really thought I could turn it into a kind of a high quality um, magazine. I mean, remember it was the heyday of magazines back then, you know, really fantastic magazines in America. Uh, magazine journalism was at its peak and I thought we could turn, you know, we could create stories um, about contemporary America from a feminist point of view that would be well written, you know, well presented, well laid out by famous writers and it would be great. Didn't happen. But not for one of trying. <clears throat> Do you feel frustrated that we still haven't really seen that magazine yeah, that we, you we imagine? Haven't, we haven't, no. Right. Um, I mean, I tried to do it a little bit with when I started my own online magazine for a few years and, and some of its reports and we, I tried to do it then by sort of you know, doing big journalism that had feminist assumptions but it wasn't positioned as a women's magazine. It was, you know, it was a general, general interest magazine. But no, I don't think... Um, you know, it's very hard to get that kind of a publication supported financially and it's probably, I think it's even also hard to find an audience for it because not enough people want it, as it turns out, sadly. <clears throat> but I've just seen for so many years um, tra traditional male newspaper owners, gallery chiefs, chiefs of staff underestimate a female audience and then puzzle over it and try to capture it. Mm -hmm. So there's still that kind of disconnect and then suddenly something like Mamma Mia that caters for women yeah. will explode and is a commercial challenge. Yeah. So I just wonder whether some of the questions you were raising with Ms. I mean, still exist. Well, I think they do. Um, but I think the, the, the era was the, – the, we're talking about the 80s. You know, the whole context was different. Yeah. I mean, I got into trouble for – you know, I, I sort of tried to broaden the editorial agenda and, and to say, well, look, you know, women are – you know, we are many things. You know, we're not just our politics and we're not just our um, – you know, no, we would never sort of cover beauty and, and stuff like that, but I, d I didn't see why we couldn't cover finances, give women financial advice about how to become independent, control their, their, their lives that way, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and some other types of um, lighter stuff. And I, and I got you know, roundly criticised for that, you know, for, for bringing in celebrities, for bringing in uh, fashion. I didn't actually bring in fashion, but we did have a, you know, stuff about clothes occasionally. I said, well, we do actually all wear clothes, so... <laughs> You can write about them without you know, <laughs> uh, becoming vogue, um, but, but it was it was it was just it turned out it was hard. It turned out to be impossible. <coughs> Two things: one is that Gloria Steinem could never let go, even though she'd sold the magazine and relinquished it, she couldn't let go. And right. and uh, she and I had a sort of superficial friendliness for a couple of years, but then it collapsed very quickly once I was in trouble. Um, and, you know, we had fundamental disagreement about how we wanted to write things. I mean, I guess it all blew up in this very you know, famous case in New York about Hedda Nussbaum. Mm. Hedda Nussbaum being a woman who um, had been a publisher, an editor at Random House and you know, had a very, you know, good uh, middle-class job. But she lived with this lawyer in a house in um, West 10th Street in, in the village in New York and she they, and they had two adopted children. One was a little girl called Lisa, and a, and a little boy who was just not, not, not only only a toddler. And these two lived this life of extraordinary depravity, uh, of drugs and violence. And eventually, Hedda stopped working. Um, she was subjected to you know, horrific uh, violence from 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 Joel Joel Steinberg, the husband. Um, and it all culminated, and it, you know, over many, many months, over a couple of years, the neighbours complained all the time about the terrible noises coming out of this place, but the police weren't able to do anything. And it all culminated one night when 
Joel uh, beat up little Lisa very badly and um, left her on the bathroom floor in a terribly injured state and then he went out to dinner for three hours and left Hedda there and during that three hours Hedda didn't pick up the phone to the um, 911 and when Joel returned three hours later the two of them freebased um, crack cocaine all night and about six o'clock the next morning they thought oh we better you know call 911 and, and by the time the ambulance arrived little Lisa was you know well, she, she died very, very quickly so they were both charged uh, initially with with murder and the women's movement just absolutely split I mean there's still fights about this in New York um, split down the middle about the extent to which Hedda had any culpability for little Lisa's death and and I, as I just tell it in the book, I mean, the two camps could broadly be divided into the Gloria Steinem camp and the Susan Brownmiller camp. And Susan Brownmiller, you know, took the more pragmatic view that, you know, understanding as we are or were about the shocking violence that had been inflicted on Hedda Nussbaum, that the, she had some responsibility. You know, she had – and the question was how much agency did she have given the this, this severe state of injuries and, of course, the fact she was – highly addicted and you know, she wasn't functioning. But it's very hard to to sort of go past that three hours when she could have picked up the phone. So the, the glorious time position was Hedda is a total victim and in no way culpable for what happened. And the, the Brown-Miller position was that uh, much as we um, are sorry for what happened to Hedda, she must bear some responsibility. And uh, Susan Brown-Miller wrote... Um, an editorial for the New York Times about this and then she wrote a novel, Waverly Place, a fictionalised account of it and I asked her to the asked her if she would cover the trial for Ms and that sent Gloria Steinem into orbit. You know, how dare I have uh, this point of view represented in the magazine? <coughs> so uh, it was on for young and old. But you know, it, was, it, it was, as I say, it represented classic... And similarly with the view, the, with the um, continual... Um, Enmity between Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. I mean, they hated each other. Famously, famously hated each <laughs> other. And and as I and I knew them both very well. Um, and I really, you know, had a lot of time for Betty, an obnoxious person as she was. But I really, you know, admired her thinking a lot. And she has written some brilliant books. And the feminine mystique is, you know, a, a huge gift to to all of us. But I just see them as two, you know, opposite and and opposing. Um, strands of feminism, you know, the, the sort of the utopian feminism of Gloria Steinem and the more pragmatic feminism of Betty Friedan. Um, and I sort of fall more into, into the pragmatic side myself, so that's probably why I identified more with her. So we've, we, <clears throat> we've only got a few more minutes, so I've just got two quick questions. <clears throat> Something else that happened in New York. Now, on page 67, you say <clears throat> you were trying to find out how do we find the right men and how do we conduct ourselves with them? <laughs> I am all ears, Anne. <clears throat> well, there is, there, is an, there is an entry in the index. I'm not sure of the page number, but index called Sex and the Single Feminist. <laughs> um, and I think the passage you're referring to is uh, my friend Paula Weidegger and I, we used to have, spend many long nights discussing this question about how we could find men that we um, respected and liked and... and you know, maybe could be be, be partners with. Um, it was a time in the women's movement where the women's movement was sort of moving away from men. Uh, Male-identified uh, feminists were being kind of edged out in favour of women-identified feminism and separatism and um, sort of radical feminism was becoming more lesbian. And so there were the conversation about what you did if you were a straight woman and you were trying to sort of figure out how to have a relationship with a man, you couldn't have that conversation in the women's movement at that time. So it, it, Paula and I would have it, you know, at her apartment over many bottles of wine trying to sort of figure it all out. Um, well, you know, we both ended up finding people, so it, it did work out. But it, but it was a big issue at that time. We're talking about the late 70s. And how do you retain your... Independence, uh, have a life of love and, and happiness, um, and not be not not surrender who you are, and to find men who are able to relate to independent women mm. is still very difficult, and it was probably even more so then. Except for Texans called Chip. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, you were speaking earlier on about the need to be brave and to work out that you could make the choices about your own life. So if you had to <clears throat> encapsulate what it is, how you unfetter yourself, how do you live a life that's unfettered and alive, what would it be? How would I characterise it? Yeah, wh- yeah, what would you tell a woman says to you, I, I want to live a life that's unfettered and alive? What would you say to do? Um, <laughs> I've just 500 pages right now. <laughs> My book. <laughs> oh, but what's at the heart of it? I think um, you decide what, you know, you, you're in char- I say you're in charge of your life and you decide what you want to do. And that choice, you know, it might involve having a partner, it might not. It might involve having children, it might not. It might involve a certain type of job, it might involve self-employment, it might involve, you know, being a... Fa- I mean, whatever it is that you think is right for you um, is what you should do. And so I guess, you know, I would say throw off the fetters of other people's expectations. I mean, I was supposed to go out and marry a lawyer... That, that, you know, or a doctor, somebody of prestige, so I could, you know, shine in their reflected glory. Um, it never occurred, my parents never occurred to them that, you know, I might just create my own glory. Mm. And that's what we need to understand that we can do and in whatever way that we we choose. So, and, and, you know, we, obviously not always, things don't always go to plan. Things happen. We have setbacks, we have failures, we have disappointments. But even so, if we can sort of continue to try and push forward and do what we want to do and don't be forced to if, do something you don't want to do, that's really all I can say. Well, thank you for creating your own glory that we can all bask in. <laughs> and I'm afraid I need to look and go, but we're going to leave it for questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hello, Anne. Thank you very much for not only this evening but for all of the work that you've done for women to advance the cause of women in particular. Um, I'm Heather Nankara. I'm the CEO of ANROSE, Australia's National Research Organisation for Women's Safety. Um, And I've been uh, interested in your comments around uh, lots of money going into research and we need to be – we're not really making enough traction and we need to be further exploring the causes. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that, about you, the the comments about uh, cause the causal factors, and you know what you think we need to be investigating in terms of causes of violence, because you know that that's what we've we're hearing you say as you uh, move around the country. And no, I, I, you're referring to what I said on Q and A, I think. I've had a huge reaction to that. Um, at which I'm really pleased that uh, people have been so responsive. I mean, basically, for those of you who didn't see it, um, it, it the question came up about um, uh, what has happened with violence and, and, and going back to Fong Ling's question is when we did that focus group research in 1992 when I was working in Keating's office and, and, and violence came up as, you know, one of the three top issues that women wanted government to act on and, and people are saying to me, you know, when they've read this in the book, or how come it's you know, that was '92 and now it's 2018, and you know what in the hell's happened? Uh, because with the, the incidence appears to have increased. Uh, certainly, we know more about it, and we've had this shocking spate of, of deaths, you know, in, in recent weeks. So it's it's front of mind, and I think people are just feeling very frustrated that that um, you know we're, we're, we are where we are. And I guess I mean it, it requires a longer conversation. I think we can have tonight, but I'll just make the quick point that. Uh, I, I fully respect what Anne Rose is doing and our watch is doing and there's some fantastic research being done. But I do feel that we are uh, too often ascribing... I mean, we, it's a truism to say that uh, gender inequality is, is both a cause and a manifestation of violence against women. I mean, that is true. But where does that get us in terms of, of, of remedial action or preventative action? And so my feeling is that we need to be breaking down violence more into its component parts to perhaps, you know, violence is a huge word, you know, it's sort of like cancer, you know, um, but there are different types of cancer and different types of violence and maybe we need to sort of start investigating different types of violence differently and maybe some lend themselves more to remediation than others and I don't know, I mean, I'm just talking uh, but I do think that with all the good work that's being done that we're a little bit stalled, I think, on description um, we have a very good understanding of what's happening, but I'm not sure that we have, have a good understanding about where we're going in terms of prevention. 
Hi, I'm Kate Jenkins. I'm the Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner and I'm currently running a national inquiry on sexual harassment at work. So I'm just interested in you as a quick consultation to tell us what you think Australia needs to do differently on sexual harassment. No pressure, go on. Um, yeah, I'm doing 12 months on it, but if you could tell me now. Okay, sure. no, no problem, Kate, no problem. Um, I'm really pleased you're doing this inquiry. I mean, one of the things I'm finding very kind of puzzling um, and I haven't really had a chance to talk to many people about it yet is that why Me Too hasn't really taken off here in the way that it has in the States. And, uh, you know, I recently did a big article about it for the Financial Review magazine, which you may have seen. In the course of doing that, I, you know, did the research as to what what the the impact um, had been in the first year from October last year to October this year. And I was able to get the documentation. I think it was 120, you know, very well-known men in all sorts of fields from, you know, the famous Harvey Weinstein and, and you know, Kevin Spacey and, you know, Richard Myers and, the, you know, the chief conductor of the Met and, the, you know, the editor of the Paris Review and, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of these guys have lost their jobs or lost their positions or been forced to resign as a result of accusations against them which have been investigated, proven to be correct and they have lost their jobs. Now, that's 120 really powerful men, and that is amazing, I think, that there have been these consequences in just a year, and it hasn't involved the courts, it hasn't involved anything, it's just involved women a bit complaining, and there's an atmosphere now ex- within, you know, corporate America and Hollywood and everywhere else that you look at, that these complaints are taken seriously, they're investigated, and if they are found to be proven, out the door, it doesn't matter who you are. And and what we've now seen, another very significant d- development with the guy at CBS, the the um, the um, CEO of, of CBS, uh, Leslie Moonves, I think his name is, that CBS has agreed to pay um, $20 million to the Me Too movement. So, you know, this source of funding, future funding girls. Um, so why isn't this happening in Australia? And everyone says, well, it's the defamation laws. Well, you know, I understand the defamation laws uh, do um, um, restrict what can be reported. But I also know from, you know, Julia, if she was still here for the subject, that one of the things when I was in journalism, you spend half your waking hours trying to do is how to get around the, the defamation laws in order to publish stories you know to be true. And I don't see the same effort being made here on these sorts of stories as you see being made with other, you know, the stories about um, Obed and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, the effort that was made to... That, the defamation laws didn't stop those stories. So why are they stopping these? And I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think we should be asking that question. But... I mean, one of the things is that, you know, that complaints under the Sex Discrimination Act, as I understand it, are immune from defamation, exempt from defamation. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, there's got to be a little opening there and hopefully your inquiry, I'm really looking forward to to the outcome of that and to your, your report, maybe your inquiry can be a catalyst to, you know, discovering what the Australian way will be of... of, of um, airing these Me Too and getting some, some action and getting some, some consequences because we know the behaviour is there. Um, we need to find our own path, I guess, to, to making it happen. I mean, you know, Australia was the first country in the world to legislate against sexual harassment and that was, you know, 1984. Uh, but Me Too has galvanised the issue in a way. It's given it a, you know, a potency and a, an immediacy that 40 years of sex D, you know, was able, unable to do, so... So I don't know. I can't answer the question. I can just articulate. That, yeah, it's your job. <laughs> Good luck. But uh, I, we, you know, we have to kind of move this forward. I think, I, and I hope you. Good luck to it in doing it. Hi, um, I'm Santana Bertoni. I'm from Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, and um, I'm, as one of the areas that I work in, um, I've been in, invited. I'm really pleased to have been invited to a, um, a Macquarie University symposium in a couple of weeks on the persistence of inequality, and I've just got a little paper I'm going to present with a PhD student but I'll be really interested in in your views on why you know so long after the Sex Discrimination Act and or, you know all the other um, policy initiatives that we've had in Australia around gender equality 
why we continue to see the persistence of inequality, you know, relatively low representation in parliament and so on. And so, you know, we've still got occupational segregation. You know, women are highly educated, but they're just not, you know, getting the same returns to their education as men. Um, this is what we're going to be discussing in a couple of weeks. I just love your opinion uh, on that, and I'll tell another, them. Another, I'll another small question. question. <laughs> <laughs> this is turning into a big policy seminar. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's just a huge question. But I, I just make one point. I would love to see a pay um, in, in a pay equity or a pay inequality case brought under the Sex Discrimination Act. And there's no reason why it couldn't be brought. And you know, it, we need some big cases, uh, and that's a great way to dramatise uh, the issue. It's a great way to get publicity for the issue. I mean, I, my firm view is we are not going to get equal pay until it's legislated. And we've got to get it out of fair work, get it out of the industrial relations system. They've had 50 years to do it and they haven't. They've failed us. So I think we have to get it into the parliament. And I think, you know, maybe a sex D case would be a great way to do it. And I think the, the, one of the other things that I you know, really you know, will never forgive John Howard for is the way he, he reduced the powers of the Act. He took away the complaint handling um, uh, abilities of the commissioner. You know, there are all sorts of things that the sex D commissioner used to be able to do that are no longer possible. And then, of course, he took away the budget. So, you know, the, the, Kate and, and her predecessors have been severely constrained in what they can do. It has become more of an educative function than an enforcement function. And it would be just great, though, if some community groups, some unions, whatever, could bring some cases under that act. And that could be quite dramatic, I think. Uh, Josefa Sobski from Women's Electoral Lobby, and I hope this isn't one of those big questions either. Um, you know, we're looking, to, looking to, messianically looking to you for answers, but I'd like you, I'd like to, uh, I'd like you to reflect on that period in government that you were um, when you were in the office of the state status of women and there was such a strong machinery of government with many senior feminists in very critical positions. All of that has been now expunged. Should we be arguing for its return or is there some other way we ought to be seeking a more effective policy and programmatic environment in government? Look, I don't think that it's... Um you know, prudent uh, to to want to reinvent the past. You know, I think what worked in the 80s um, is not necessarily going to work. And in fact, I'm sure it wouldn't work now. I mean, you know, the age of the Femocrat probably is sadly over. It was great while it lasted. As we had beige suits and sensible shoes <laughs> and briefcases. <laughs> um, maybe small style pads. But, uh, but I think that model, you know, is probably, you know, Behind us, I mean, one of the things that's changed dramatically about government is the outsourcing of policy, and I think, which I think is shameful, and you know, the the, the removal of policy. I know mean, somebody made a point. Paul Barrett, you know, who's a former head of defence, who's you know, very active on Twitter. For those of you who follow it, um, he made the point the other day that for this government to have appointed, this sounds like a sidebar, but it's not, to have appointed um, Tony Abbott and Barnaby Joyce as ambassadors to whatever. Why would you appoint members of parliament to be ambassadors? This is work the public service used to do, you know. And this is the, so the whole constituent work of the public service and the policy development work, which is what the public service used to do. And the whole reason we went into the bureaucracy as Democrats is because that's where the power was, and that's where the policies were made, and that's where you could affect change. So if that's no longer where it's happening, you know, we, we have to look at where it's happening and figure out, you know, wh where we influence it. But, you know, there still is an office for women in Canberra. Uh, we don't hear much about them, but I, I, I wish they could be a little more, you know, strategic in what they do. I mean, I don't, maybe they are, but I don't know. We don't, we don't really hear. And we don't see much evidence of, um, you know, good women's policy in this government. I don't know what Labor's planning to do if they get in at the next election. But I think, you know, with everything, we've got to, we've got to adapt and, and reinvent ourselves for this era. And I, I think we might as well wait until there's a Labor government because it's a waste of time with this mob. Hi, my name's Isabel. I'm actually an undergrad here at UTS. I'm in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Um, I had a question recently. The Respect Now Always um, report came out about sexual harassment and sexual assault in universities. I wanted to ask, 
obviously you wrote your article in the 1970s about Sydney and the culture surrounding um, sexual assault, sexual harassment within a university. 40 years on, we're still dealing with this. Um, obviously, we're talking about policy and um, that's great, but there's also a culture of, um, I guess, either you speak out against it and you're labelled something uh, radical for saying that you don't want to be assaulted um, or um, you're complicit in this kind of um, this behaviour and this... Um, culture of assault and I wanted to ask um, I guess what your thoughts on it um, what you what are your thoughts on it especially considering that as a university um, it's sort of seen that we're the the most radical people around you know the um, where the um, the change is supposed to come from and yet we're still experiencing such um, huge problems I just wanted to ask your thoughts on that well um, I'm not sure that I can can answer you. I'm, I'm not as familiar with... I'm not involved with the universities, um, so I'm, I'm not as familiar with on-the-ground um, culture as, as, as obviously you are and lots of other people are. But I would just make a point about being on the forefront of change. I mean, the fact that uh, the university sector is investigating this and writing these reports and there is such awareness of it and pushback by feminists and by women and by everybody against it shows that you are fighting it. So that I would feel proud of that. Um, the fact that this behaviour persists and the fact that um, um, you know is, is something is reprehensible and, and 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 shameful. I'm very sorry about that. It seems to be something that's happening. You know, there's a lot of this stuff in the states. I mean, a lot of there's been a lot of writing about um, sexual harassment and other forms of sexual abuse culture at, and on campuses and the universities. So it does seem to have increased a lot. I think from the, the time I was writing about when it was more an aberrant behaviour, whereas now it seems to be sort of normal behaviour. And that perhaps is a reflection of, of some of the trends in our culture at the moment um, with certain types of male behaviour, which um, seem to get a lot of press and help get you on the Supreme Court if you live in America. So it's, um, it's, I can't really say very much except, you know, good on you and don't, don't worry about what people call you. Don't worry. Hi, I just want to say thank you for your talk. It's been excellent. Um, I'm at Macquarie University doing a PhD looking to document the histories of a few regional women's refuges in New South Wales. And um, my question for you was, um, what are your thoughts on the recent uh, closures of independent um, women's refuges in New South Wales and also the transformations of other refuges from independently run feminist-driven <laughs> organisations to being handed over to faith-based organisations or, um, like, independent bodies? And um, what are your thoughts on those closures and transformations? And also um, I'm really interested in the loss of those um, feminist communities and the women that had expertise in that field and were part of their local communities... Which is <laughs> thank you. Well, if you could speak to that, very pleased to hear that you're writing about this, and I think uh, hope your research um, will involve um, perhaps you know p uh, creating um, little histories of some of those communities. Um, which ones are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at Carrie's place in Maitland, um, Lynn's place in Tari, which is now. Um, changed hands I know, and yeah. Warina Refuge in Coffs Harbour. So it's been very tricky because it's a matter of kind of working out people and refuges I can talk to because some it's very difficult because they've kind of closed and yeah. have kind of been erased. So getting a balance between some that have been transformed slightly into different services but were originally established um, in the 70s and 80s as feminist-based organisations and then um, having Lynn's Place, for example, that um, did uh, cease its existence but being able to talk to those women that previously worked there. Mm. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad you're doing that. It's a really important piece of history and uh, that we need that sto those stories um, to be to be written and to be you know preserved and to be accessible. I mean, no point in asking me what I think about what happened. You know what I think. I mean, it's just shameful. I mean, for Elsie Women's Refuge, we run by St Vincent de Paul, operate nine to five. You know, run by men is just you know unconscionable, and uh, certain people will never be forgiven for that. Um, and we will have our revenge. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> sometimes it takes a while. But. I mean, one of the things that, that we... It goes back to an earlier question about, you know, losing things that we thought were cemented in, into, our, into our structure, into our system. 
that is a prime example of what happened with the refugees in New South Wales. And um, we are having to adapt. I mean, there's a whole new model. Annabelle Daniel sitting here, she's, she's pioneered a whole new model um, of community-based refugees funded by community uh, philanthropy and, and community uh, effort. And um, that's a model that's very different from what used to exist in the, the, the faith-based or the, um, you know, the, religion, the St Vincent de Paul Salvation Army model that existed before Elsie. And I think what Animal's doing is terrific, and it's also respond. It's it's it goes out and finds areas of need and 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 creates refuges in areas of need. So I and one of the things I'm very interested in is looking at new models of refuge funding. I think we have to accept the fact that government funding is never going to be sufficient. It, we may not even get it at all in the future, uh, but we're still going to have a need for refuges in the foreseeable future, unfortunately. So we have to be realistic about that, and we have to find ways. Of, of raising money and one of the things that struck me when, when you know I haven't had anything to do with Elsie for years and years, decades but people would still ring me up all the time and say I want to give money to Women's Refuge how do I do it and you couldn't there was no way to do it so you know we've got to find some ways of being able to enable people in the community who want to give money to, to these services to be able to do so and, I, and I'm interested in working in that area as well. So, you know, we're going to, again, we have to regroup and we have to reimagine how we do things, but we're going to, where the need is there, we'll, we'll meet it. Thank you for continuing to inspire us. And I think a lot of us would love to know, after this yet another incredible achievement, what's next for Anne Summers? <laughs> well, the next two weeks I'm going to continue to be travelling around Australia uh, talking about my book. To, um, I'm so thrilled that, that um, there's such interest uh, from groups all around the country and I'm even going to far north Queensland next week. Um, not to Ingham, but um, but <laughs> Townsville, which is close. And I'm just really um, extremely gratified and, and, and happy that, that there is such interest in talking about these issues and talking about um, interest in my life as a bit of a template for how you know other women can can take charge of their lives. And so I'm going to be doing that for the next two weeks and then I'm going back to New York, which is where I'm currently living because my partner got himself a job there, so I had to go and uh, be there. Um, I'm not sure what the next project will be, but don't worry, it will be something. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018 Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.